one of the guys from the bus took the microphone and did a little bit of a game, you know, like, <laughs> what's your decision, mate? And you know, they had so much fun. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm Valerie Koo from the Australian Writers' Centre, and you're listening to my friend Ash Roy on ProductiveInsights.com. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to www.productiveinsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. I'm Ash Roy, the founder of ProductiveInsights.com, and this episode is brought to you by the Productive Insights Done For You podcast launch service, which positions you as a leading authority in your market and successfully turns listeners into high-value customers. Book a call with me on callashroy.com to discuss how we can get started today. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. James Calopio. I met James when I was doing my MBA at the Australian Graduate School of Management, also known as the AGSM, and we hit it off right away because he told me he played the drums. Now, I happen to be an aspiring guitarist, so I was really impressed with that. He also happens to be one of the best teachers I've ever had and influenced my thinking greatly. He's the father of two young, lovely ladies. He's an academic, a management consultant, and an author of five books on personal growth, development, organizational strategy and change, and a whole lot more. James has worked on projects for numerous Australian and European organizations, including the United Nations, Rio Tinto, IBM, Australian Federal Police, Deloitte, Honeywell Australia, just to name a few. He's published over three dozen articles and five books on various socio-technical issues and has written a regular section for the Australian Financial Review Boss magazine. James was the director of the AGSM's Accelerated Development Program and also was a lecturer at the AGSM, which is where I met him. James holds a PhD in psychology. He is currently working as a consultant in the areas of transformational and cultural change and has a thriving private practice in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. James has recently written a very interesting book on decision making and has some insights to share with us. So I'm delighted to welcome James Calopio from jamescalopio.com. Welcome, James. Good afternoon, Ash. How's it going? Good. It's an absolute honor to have you on the show. So thank you very much for being on. No, my pleasure. Really looking forward to it, buddy. Cool. So James, let's talk a little bit about this book. Tell us about the main insights you gained from writing this book on decision-making and why those insights are important to business owners who are listeners of this show. I guess first thing to say is the book and the research is based upon interviews with about 50 match officials, I call them. So both you know, umpires and referees. I just refer to both groups as match officials from the big Australian sports. So we interview people from AFL down in Melbourne. I'm from both rugby's, rugby union and rugby league. Interviewed um, referees, match officials from soccer Australia, from A-League and from cricket Australia. And my co-author has done about three quarters of the interviews. And I did about a quarter of the interviews and most of the research and, and writing. And so look, a few big insights, Sash. The first is the decision-making, and this everybody knows, decision-making is critical. I mean, all your listeners, everybody makes decisions. You make silly decisions from where we're going to go to have dinner tonight to serious business decisions about what markets to penetrate, about what to do with clients, about what to do with employees. So decision-making is just critical to success. So I'm sure that's important to everybody that's listening. Yeah, and it's part of every moment of our lives, really. Constantly. And we don't often think about how we make decisions. 
So one of the greatest insights I got from doing this research was that one of the best group of decision makers on the planet happens to be sporting match officials. Now, I just didn't expect that when I went into this. My motivation was to put together two things that I loved most, sports with business and management and people and and decision making. So when I got into starting to think about match officials and started doing research, Ash, it was just shocking. So for example, I looked at how good psychologists are. And there's a bunch of studies that show that psychologists are pretty good at making decisions. One, because that's my background. So of course I started with psychology. And uh, there's one particular study looked at how good psychologists are at predicting psychiatric patients' violence risk. And you know, their accuracy ranged from between about 2% to about 50, 54%. So you know, less than half the time they were correct. Another study I looked at looked at how good doctors are at predicting things. One was how good doctors are predicting the likelihood of someone developing lung cancer, and it's a pretty low rate. It's about one and a half percent success rate. That's a, obviously a really difficult thing to do for doctors. One of the other studies that looks at doctors is how good are they at predicting or estimating the age of a bruise, for example. And that basically showed that about 47%, some of these studies are pretty funny, 47.6%. So somewhere about half the time, once again, doctors can accurately predict an accidental bruise's age. When you look at people or how good they are at predicting what's going on in the stock market, again, another series of studies looked at it about 40%, 50% of the time. Now, when you look at match officials, and of course, in the book, I go into a lot more detail about this, 70 to 90% of the time, they are objectively accurate, usually around 80%. I know it, it blew me away. Now, of course, yeah, they make howlers, as we say in Australia, they make lots of mistakes. And we talk about that in the book, and we'll probably talk about that a couple of minutes between you and I. But when you're comparing that to you know some other decision professionals who are in the, the 2% to 40% range, and you look at these guys and gals who are consistently in the 80% range they are objectively some of the best decision makers on the planet. Okay, let me ask a question there though. If we look at the scope of the decisions and the impact of the decisions and the body of knowledge that a doctor, say, is trying to draw upon before making a decision about a patient, and you say, compare that to the body of knowledge that a tennis umpire is trying to make a decision on. They're fairly different though, aren't they? The parameters? Oh, of course. You know, the human body is amazingly complex. And if you make a decision there, someone might die. And, you know, the referees are not making, well, usually (laughs) are not making life and death decisions. So yeah, you would probably expect them to be better because it, it is bounded. And Quite often with medicine, you know, you you can't really tell. Whereas there's video evidence. So the interesting thing about the way match officials do it is they they do it quickly. You know, doctors and emergency medical technicians and firefighters, some of them have a bit more time to make a decision. And that's the thing that always really impressed me about the match officials. It's it's narrow, it's limited, of course. It's not like running a multinational corporation, but they're literally doing it on the run. And they're doing it probably somewhere between every four to six seconds, depending upon which sport you're looking at, they're making another decision. Even though they don't blow the whistle all the time, they're constantly, constantly making decisions. So yes, Ash, it's definitely a very particular kind of decision. And we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes because there's lots of different ways that people go about making decisions. Yeah. But you know, I I have to also say that the truth is that a lot of us in a day-to-day existence do need to make those small decisions around minutiae, which can add up to have a huge impact. So there is definitely a hell of a lot we can learn from these 
referees and umpires, and for that matter, even doctors, when they make decisions, they are not always making life or death decisions. They might be making smaller decisions that could have a bigger impact. You know, it might be a decision of, you know, do I go and work out at the gym today so that I can be in a better state to perform better at work and be paying more attention? Absolutely. You may remember a study that we talked about when you were doing your MBA. When we look at exactly what it is that a manager does throughout the day, Mm. they make dozens of tiny little decisions, just like you're talking about, minute by minute. I think what was it? Henry Mintzberg study showed that a manager on average spends about five minutes on a task. So it's just, you know, bang, decision, take in information, bang, another decision, move on, deal with a customer, deal with an employee, deal with a bank, deal with a lawyer, back to a customer, go on to the internet. So yeah, that in that sense, that's the decision-making that is reflected when we study how match officials make decisions. And James, there's something else I wanted you to touch on as well. I remember very distinctly this case study that we had done on decision-making and whether gut feeling is something a manager can rely on. And at the end of that case study, I remember they found that this feeling that a manager has, this leaning towards a yes or a no around a decision is actually a result of many, many decisions and the outcomes of those decisions they've made over years in their jobs. So what seems like a gut feeling isn't necessarily as nebulous and unobjective as one would think. And I'd actually mentioned this in the episode with Lisa Myers, where we talked about the importance of trusting your gut. So I'd love it if you could sort of weave that a bit into the conversation too. Absolutely. That, that is the point of the book. In the decision-making research area, it's called automated expertise. And you've described it perfectly. It happens with match officials. It happens with firefighters. It happens with police officers. It happens with military personnel in you know, live fire situations under incredible stress when people don't have the time that a, you know, an engineer would to sit and think and plan. And, and these guys and gals the culmination of years of education, of years of feedback, of years of experience, just like the match officials, it comes together in that spark of bang. And yes, it seems like it's this nebulous gut feel. And I'll I'll talk to you about it, you know, when we get to some of the questions later on, when we get into more detail, but that's exactly, that's the outcome of the entire research project, Dev, right there. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Because that really stuck with me. And People pay a lot of money to talk to management consultants and doctors and lawyers or whatever. But ultimately, what you're paying for really is those years and years of experience that they have spent grinding out, whether as an intern or, or, you know, whatever, as a trainee lawyer, as a trainee manager, you know, they've spent years on the ground and you're getting the benefit of those years of work. That's it. Okay, let's talk then about, We've already moved into it, actually. You know, my next question was going to be, what does decision-making involve and what are the key influences of good or bad decisions? Gotcha. Look, there's basically two types of decision processes that people talk about. I've already alluded to the first one. Actually, I've alluded to them both, right? The first one is the typical engineering, technical decision-making. It's called the rational model. It's well thought out. Somebody sits down and considers what are the three different companies I can buy or what are the four different products I can offer? What are the six different locations I could open my shop up in? And they sit there with well thought out sheets of pros and cons, or they run spreadsheets and they choose the rationally, seemingly best decision. Of course, it's not so simple because you have to adjust criteria and you do have to make some judgments, but it's pretty much a rational 
process. The other way of making decisions, and this is what the match officials do, and this is what the people, you know, the emergency medical technicians and the ED doctors, you know, when someone comes in after a, you know, a car accident and it's, look, we, we don't have a couple of hours here, right? We're not, gonna, <laughs> we're not going to sit and you and I have a chat and just let the person bleed for a while and we'll come back and we'll let them know what we're going to do tomorrow. You know, exactly. It's just insane. So that is a much more impulsive, intuitive, go with your first gut instinct view. And that is what shows up from our research project. Wow. Okay. So these match officials then that are making these decisions on the run every three to five minutes, I think you said every three to five seconds. Wow. Okay. So these match officials that are making decisions that frequently are developing a massive library of experience or knowledge to draw upon. And by the time they become a match official or an umpire at, say, the Australian Open or Wimbledon or US Open or whatever it is, in using a tennis example, they have already refereed or umpired hundreds of thousands of matches. And all that is brought to bear in those split second moments. Exactly. And, you know, these guys and gals take it quite seriously. I was really impressed when I went to visit some of the facilities for the peak bodies. These people, like, for example, at the end of a match for the rugby league folks, there's a some there's a, a, a matching, a coaching referee who's watched the entire game. And as soon as the head official finishes the game, they go into the tunnel and they go into their space and they have their own debrief then the coaching match official comes and debriefs with them then the next day someone has put together video clips for them from the match and they do a skype call or a telephone call where they all debrief on that and then the the full-time people actually then for rugby league for example then all go out to the stadium near Parramatta and they do more work and they get more feedback and i guess the basic way to summarize it after looking at it across rugby's and cricket and soccer and NFL is the development and feedback process is pretty much relentless and ruthless. These guys take it amazingly seriously, Ash, and that's how they can get to that expertise that you've been alluding to so far. It doesn't happen by accident. There's a very important takeaway for our listeners here, and that is when you make decisions, it is very important to build in some kind of a feedback loop to ask yourself at the end of the day, week, month, whatever, about the quality of the decisions you've made and how you could have made better decisions. Now, I personally... I'm a big believer in journaling and I write stuff in a journal. I just use this thing called day one on my computer. But, you know, whether it is handwriting things and just asking yourself the question, what went well today and what didn't go well today is a very good and useful little hack that everyone can use to improve the quality of their decision making and maybe even the decision criteria. I, I actually push it a little further that, buddy. I don't even think there's anything little about it at all. <laughs> I think it's huge. It's the only way to learn. It's the only way to improve. You look at every sport, sporting person, you look at every match official, you look at every millionaire, you look at every successful business person, you look at every psychologist, doctor, mother, father, anybody who's gotten great at what they've done. Yeah has done so by continually getting feedback, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes, correcting those mistakes. There's no other way to learn, buddy. You can't sit in your house, you know, making believe, you know, you're getting better at something. You got to get out there on the field and play. Okay. So these referees have these very formal structures and, you know, they formally appraised and they think about how they made the decisions and they revisit all these decisions. What can someone listening to this episode do in their business or their situation to become a consistently better decision maker. 
Gotcha. Well, this is several things, but the one most salient now, because we just talked about it, is to ask for feedback. You know, we we do a lot of customer satisfaction surveys and, you know, you get them when you're on the telephone. I won't name any particular companies here in Australia, but you get these stupid questionnaires. And if you want to be serious about feedback, get a customer on the telephone and ask them what went well, what could you do better, what went terribly, you know, just get feedback. There's an ask for it. Most of us are terrified. Most of us just don't want the feedback because it hurts, right? You know, we get our feelings hurt or we don't, you know, just grow up. If you want to get better, if you want to learn, if you want to grow, suck it up, ask for feedback, act on that feedback. There's nothing else you can do. Mm. There is something that is really important about being able to accept feedback that you don't like. And when I remember to do this, I do it. I don't do it as often as I would like, but I think it's understanding that the feedback that someone is giving you may seem negative, but how you feel about it is your choice. So for example, let's say somebody gives me feedback about how I've done a particular job and I feel like that's not fair or, you know, I think I did, I tried my heart out and they've given me some really negative feedback, whether I choose to take it personally and get emotional about it or whether I choose to say, okay, there are some specific points that they have made and these are areas that I agree with and I think I need to improve on. I can improve on them or I can just choose not to accept that feedback. I'm not saying, I'm not encouraging people to ignore feedback here. I'm just saying that getting upset about the feedback is pointless. Either you do something about it or you don't. And another useful tool, I think, when it comes to feedback is asking for specific feedback. So if you didn't think I did X, Y, Z properly, what specifically do you think I could have done better? Yes, absolutely. Specific, accurate, timely feedback. It's the answer. No doubt about it, buddy. In terms of consistency around decision-making, feedback is obviously one thing we can do Mm -hmm. to become a consistently better decision-maker. Is there anything else we need to be thinking about? Yes. The match officials talked to us about a bunch of other things. Mainly, they had to do with being prepared and, and priming and looking for patterns I know it's a lot of peas there. It just I didn't look for that. It just sort of turned out that way. And once again, I didn't I didn't expect it. They talk about preparation long before the match, preparation just prior to the match, and even they're doing preparation while they're running down the field that I'll tell you about in a second. So it's sort of like within match preparation. And then obviously, you know, post-match. So let me talk to you about the different kinds of preparation and priming that they do and the, and the patterns that they look for. In terms of pre-match, they do a seriously rigorous research. They look at the teams. They look at the history of the individual players. They look for tendencies. They look for patterns. And that, yeah, again, I didn't really expect that. They do tons of video watching. And so it's part of their, you know, their their performance feedback process, but it's also part of knowing what's going to be happening. And if you think about it, firefighters, you know, military, police, EMTs, they all do the same thing, right? They all prepare. When you go into a meeting, don't you think about that meeting? Yeah. Yeah, true. Exactly. I, I rehearse. I rehearse this. You know, I, I think about the questions and I think about my answers and I think about what could someone could say. I'm constantly preparing. So that's one of the things that every one of these top flight MOs, match officials did. I could have predicted that. But the thing I really couldn't predict was the stuff that they do while they're literally in the game. This totally shocked me. A couple of the soccer guys were talking about it, about how they're running down the field saying, if they get tackled from behind. Now it's 
okay, if he moves over here, then it's a yellow card. Now, oh, now it's in the box. It's going to be a red card. And they told these stories about how they're constantly thinking about what they will do if X, Y, or Z happens. And of course, that's how they can blow the whistle in two seconds because they're already there. They're already primed. Right. And for people who don't know about this concept of priming, my favorite example, and, and you'll be familiar with this, buddy, I'm sure. The first time you buy a car, let's say you bought you know, a, a, a Holden or a VW, whatever kind of car you're going to buy. If this is the first time you bought that car, it's just bizarre when you go home with that car. All of a sudden, when you're driving around, you notice all the other cars on the road with the same kind of make and model, right? You know, the number of those cars on the road haven't changed. Your perception of them changed because you're primed. You just bought one. So now you notice all the pink Ferraris, if you bought a pink Ferrari, you know, that are on the road. And so that's what these guys and gals did. They primed themselves and they're doing that by looking for patterns. And when I look back at what the firefighters do and the EMTs do and the great decision makers of, a, of our planet do, they're constantly recognizing patterns. And business people need to do this all the time. You're looking at patterns in the market, looking at patterns in consumer preferences, looking at patterns in technology. You and I talked about patterns when we did strategy in the MBA class. It's what we do to predict what's going on in the environment. And these folks are particularly good at it. Okay, but what's the risk of what is called confirmation bias. Is John McEnroe then more likely to get code violations because the umpire has already been primed to expect him to do stuff, you know, to be the naughty boy? Absolutely great question, Ash. And that is a potential problem. And I've got a whole section in the book on what we call unintended psychological biases. And when I discuss these points with the match officials, thank goodness, they were all really well aware. They say, yeah. I need to be prepared, but not preempt. Aha. That right. came up a bunch of different times. And that's their, their, that's their language. I know it's, it's another P as well, but it's their language. It's not mine. They're very aware of the fact that they need to be primed. They need to be prepared, but they don't want to blow that whistle. And of course, yeah, they, they make mistakes. Sometimes they do blow it. And But as with all of these biases, forewarned is forearmed. So by reading the books and by thinking about these things and by doing your preparation, and then you remind yourself, allow it to unflow, be in the moment. They talk a lot about uh, mental toughness, which you and I know more of, Ash, as emotional intelligence. Uh-huh. And I think that's what they use to counter it. They, they try and be rigorous and in the moment. They don't use that language because it's a little too touchy-feely for you know sports people. But that's really what they're talking about. They're trying to be really present and really in the moment. So while they're prepared, they don't overreact and they don't preempt. It's Yeah, it's a tough edge. But that's a really very, very good insight you just gave me. You know, I think that we can rehearse more in our day-to-day lives. One of my biggest problems, I think, is I have a tendency to ramble. A great solution for that I have found is I try and rehearse what I'm going to say in a split second before I say it. In fact, I'm doing it right now. And maybe even slow down my speech, which then helps me to be more to the point. Absolutely. Now, that's great. You want to think and you want to plan through, but you don't want to overdo it. Everything's, everything's a bit of a balance, Ash. And I, it, it didn't, balance does come up a little bit in the book, but it's one of the things that you and I talk about a lot. It's all, any one of these comments, any one of these things that you can learn from any of these books, anything can be overdone. Right. Um, you know, Bruce Lee was a great martial artist, obviously, but he was also a great philosopher. And something that he said, his idea of mastering an art was you completely master the art and then the ultimate sophistication is learning to forget and letting your body just do 
what it knows. Jeet Kune Do, which was his style of martial arts, he essentially got it down to functioning at a spinal level. So if somebody, say, did a certain kick, then there, there would be the block and there would be no cognitive involvement. It would almost be spinal, but that came from a result of years and years and years of practicing and responding in the same way. Automated expertise. Exactly. Perfect example. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great takeaway for our listeners. You know, if you have a, if you're a business owner and you know that there is an area that you're struggling with or an area that you need to develop further, then rehearse the situation in your mind Imagine the scenario and think about how you're going to deal with it and develop over time the automated expertise. And by the way, automated expertise does not, I just want to clarify this, does not mean a thoughtless response. It means an automated response that is holistic and takes into account everything in the situation, but does so without being too cognitive, if you like. It's almost like a decision that comes from your entire being, not just from your mind. Would you agree? I think so. Yes. It's when you rehearse something so often, like when I used to play the drums professionally, where we started together, you know, you practice so many hours and you rehearse the guitar so many times, you just kind of you're able to wing it. When I get up in front of a group now and I've spoken about, you know, decision-making and people management so many times over 35 years, it's just like having a conversation. So it's all in there. And that's what everybody needs to develop if they want to get to the top level of their field, whether it is a cricket referee or someone who runs a, a pizzeria. You know, you just want to make it so natural and effortless that, um, yeah, it, it, it looks beautiful, but it, it's totally based upon, you know, there's this, you've heard of the 10,000 hours and 10 years and you know, there's a little bit of humming and hawing and umming and hawing about whether that's an exact number or a correct number. You can argue about the number of hours or number of years, but Anybody who's great, whether they're a doctor or a firefighter or a, a martial artist, has practiced entrepreneurs, billionaires, people who run organizations, the ones who are really good at it. It's natural because they've practiced and rehearsed. Okay, so let's talk about challenges. What are the biggest challenges you've seen when it comes to becoming a good decision maker and how do people overcome those challenges? Yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing privilege to to do the interviews because people were willing to talk about their mistakes. They were willing to talk about their challenges. And and some of it was was truly heart-wrenching. So for example, one of the match officials, um, Tasmania's Mike Graham Smith from Cricket Australia, he was in the bowler's end when Phil Hughes was struck on the head by the ball. And if you follow cricket, yeah, you know that that turned out to be a lethal blow. I mean, just oh. a heart-wrenching, horrible, horrible thing. Yeah. And so, you know, he had to deal with that. <laughs> you know, when we talked to him about how to handle a crisis, I think his final comment about that was, yeah, I don't think anything else will ever come close to that, to be honest with you. You know, it, it sort of puts everything in, in perspective because, you know, r match officials are really, they take their duty of care quite seriously. So, yeah, one of the... Um, one of the problems that you have to deal with making these decisions is sometimes it is 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 devastating. Other times, the match officials told us you know fun stories. Another guy named Stuart Wen from the AFL, twenty years experience, mm -hmm. three hundred, four hundred senior match officials. When I talked to him about sometimes how everyone hates the ref, you know, he told me stories about how yeah, you know, sometimes you make mistakes and people get really upset. And he he relates this one particular story where um. They were in, in Western Australia, if I remember correctly. It was Fremantle against the West Coast Eagles. And Fremantle lost by a point. And they couldn't find a taxi at the end of the hotel. So he and his 
co-umpire standing outside the, the um, football stadium waiting to try and find a taxi and the Fremantle cheering squad. So this is the team that just lost by a point. Um, their bus sitting by. And so one of the guys from the bus sticks his head out and says, hey, hey, you guys, you bloke, you, 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 you the umpire, turns to his buddy and says, uh, I mean, sorry, Stuart turns to his buddy and says, what, what's going on here? You know, it turns out they actually gave them a ride back to their hotel. And Stuart tells the story about how when they got on the bus, one of the guys from the bus took the microphone and did a little bit of a game, you know, like, <laughs> what's your decision, mate? And you know, they had so much fun. So oh, that's these wonderful. people, they care about the sport. They care about getting it right. They have amazing capacity to deal with mistakes. So they've got great courage. As we mentioned earlier, they've got amazing emotional intelligence. And they... What really shocked me was the number of stories that they told us where they went back and apologized to people, where they realized the mistake. And they said, look, mate, you know, I, I, I would, did the best I could. I just goofed up. I'm so sorry. And, you know, sometimes the players are not quite too <laughs> pleased about that and have a hard time. But it's a shockingly large number of times where the match officials relate the story after they go back wow. and apologize to a player or to a coach where the, the player or coach says, mate, don't worry about it. We all make mistakes. You're yeah. doing the best you can. and." Yeah, just, you know, the humanity in that. And the only other thing I'll yeah. say about that that really <laughs> shocked me was one of the myths in sport is that match officials will do a makeup call. I know this is not about sports per se, but I do want to get this one out here, Ash, because it really bugs me when I hear oh. um People think that match officials, if they make a mistake, will correct that mistake by making a decision for the other team, you know, sort of. If I made a mistake for team A, later on, I'll make a mistake to even it up for team B. When I talk to the match officials about that, and we'll, we'll get to in a second why this is so important to your, to your listeners, they were actually indignant. They said, that's cheating. We do not do that. We make the best decision we can every single time we can. And if I make a mistake in team A's favor now, if I make a mistake in team B's favor later, that's just statistics. You know, that just works out because I'm Exactly. I'm not biased in anybody's favor. I'm always trying to make the best decision. And so I think that's one of the great lessons that your listeners can take back. Of course, you're going to make a mistakes. Every single ref we talked to told us about three or four, and we got serious mistakes here, buddy. If you read the book, there's mistake in, in World Cup soccer matches, in World Cup rugby matches, mistakes that cost players and teams careers and games. But they always come back to how can I never make that mistake again? Right. And that's what they tell us. The only way to make up for a mistake is to never make that mistake again. So that's the lesson for your listeners, buddy. You're going to make a mistake. Got it. Don't ever make that mistake again. And that really beautifully ties into one of the earliest concepts we talked about, which was, you know, being willing to accept feedback. So one of the biggest challenges clearly around becoming a better decision maker is fear, you know, the fear of making mistakes and actually making the mistakes. But the way you overcome that challenge is by being willing to look at yourself and accept that you can make mistakes and being courageous enough to admit that you made a mistake, whether you admit it to the player or yourself, you know, however you feel you need to make it right, you got to make it right. But the most important thing here is to build in some systems and processes so you don't make that mistake again. And whether that system is an unofficial little system in your head, or whether it's something you build into your business, whether you build it into your workflow, whatever it is, it's important to learn from it and then embed the solution as a process of some kind into your future decision-making process. 
Absolutely. I forgive anybody making a mistake. If you make the same mistake two or three times, I'm kind of scratching my head and thinking you're pretty stupid because who's good, who's going to make the same mistake two or three times? That's just not the way you get ahead in the world. And I think that just reflects a lack of interest. So this brings us to the action section, which I really enjoy. So the key actions that I took away from this conversation are first and foremost, look for feedback. Ask people for feedback. Ask yourself for feedback. If you want to become a better decision maker, feedback is the first place you have to go and you have to develop some kind of a system to get yourself regular feedback. You need to be willing to make mistakes and accept the consequences of those mistakes, which in my view is a part of life in any field of life, but particularly so around decision making. And you need to be willing to build experience until it becomes almost a gut feel, which if you have enough experience, you can learn to trust. You also need to understand the importance of being prepared, understand the importance of priming, which is rehearsing a scenario on the fly. You know, if this happens, then I'm going to respond this way. If this happens, I'm going to respond that way and understand patterns around situations and how those situations are likely to play out. So then you can be prepared to make a decision should it play out in the way that you expect it to without being too influenced by confirmation bias. Right. Now, very good. Good summary, buddy. And there's just one more that we haven't touched on yet that I'd like to add, because remember, you're talking to a psychologist here. So <laughs> a lot of this starts with self-awareness. So it's one more thing I'd like to add yeah, to, the, to the listeners and, and we see it everywhere. You've got to, I guess it's part of your feedback, right? It's, but it's self-feedback. So you know what your patterns are. You know what your preferences and biases are, what your decision style, right? Are you rational? Are you intuitive? And whatever the answer is, is fine. Just recognize that and then look at where the areas for improvement are, right? And identify your levels of resilience and mental toughness or emotional intelligence, as we talked about earlier. So, you know, it's just all about self-reflection, right? Because if you don't know yourself, you don't know where you are, there's, there's no place to go up from there. So that's how you get feedback and that's how you know where to develop. So yep, you got an HD buddy on your summary and we'll, we'll add self-awareness to the list and, and we're doing really well. Yes. Thank you. I actually did think about the term mindfulness because I'm a big believer in it, as you know, and I've been practicing it on and off for years now. It is something that's difficult to do. And mindfulness is just to me a form of self awareness. And that's just becoming aware of your own mental patterns and how you tend to behave in certain situations, almost looking down on yourself from up above, as it were, or imagining yourself in the backseat of a car as you being the driver and looking at yourself in third person and understanding yourself in situations as opposed to just being inside your body reacting to situations, because that can really give you some great insights. So Thank you for bringing that up. I think that is a great point. And mindfulness is interestingly a theme that seems to find its way into almost every conversation on my podcast because I'm such a big believer in it. Self-awareness is another form of that. And not surprising, buddy, because that I call it a witness state. So you're, you're 100% in there and you're also being a bit of a witness to what's going on. And I of course, the match officials didn't use that language because it's a bit too psyche and touchy-feely for them, but, but they talked about it. They talk about being totally present, but also stepping back and making sure you manage the game and you know what's going on and where you are on the field, to be in the right position, knowing what the score is. You've got to have that context in mind, no matter where, whether you're a match official or you're running a small business. You can never just do one. You've got to be able to do both. A key to being in that witness state is 
repetition and preparation and the other P's that you talked about, you know, priming. It's about being so across the situation that you're able to let the automated expertise step in. If you haven't mastered the basics, then the the automated expertise, the the witness state is a lot harder to bring to bear because you're too busy dealing with the minutiae. But if you have the minutiae under control, because you've done it that many times and you've rehearsed that many times and you've given your heart and soul to committing yourself to that practice, then you can become that high quality decision maker. Yeah, absolutely. But think simplest example. Think about the first time you got behind the wheel of an automobile on the motorway. Yeah. All right. I couldn't keep the car in the lane because I was thinking about, you know, where do I go? What do I do? After an hour of that, it becomes completely automated. I freed up cognitive capacity. So that's that's the, the psych version of what you just said. The normal minutiae, all the different specific little tiny things that a beginner has to think about. So using your tennis example, where do I put my left foot? Do I toss the ball up? How do I hold the racket? If you're thinking about that, you're not remembering where you you know where, where you are in the mat when you've got all of that mastered you're thinking about the fact that all right you know i'm thinking strategically now so i'm down six love or i'm up six two the last time i did this she did that all right and so you it just frees up that cognitive capacity so you can think at a whole new strategic level and that's what the match officials and successful business people are able to do awesome i absolutely love that thank you so much for crystallizing that with that term freeing up cognitive capacity That's a beautiful term. Thank you. (laughs) Psych jargon. So books, James, what books have had the biggest impact on you? And before we let our listeners go, we have to tell them the name of this book we're talking about. So what's the book called? Well, I know it might seem a little bit weird, but I haven't actually settled on a title yet because I've got a couple of different versions of the book that are going to come out simultaneously. One version of the book is going to be specifically for those interested in sports. So for, you know, serious match officials, people who are in the state grade or in the, you know, lower grades and want to become the best match officials and international level people, serious sportsmen and sportswomen, coaches, you know, sports management people. So that's sort of one audience and there'll be one book and version of the book that comes out for that. But there's going to be another version that's literally for your listeners. It's what can we learn from match officials? So, you know, the, the, the first book's probably going to be called you know, High Performance Match Officiating because that's really what it's going to be focused on. But the other one, I don't know, maybe we'll get some feedback from your, uh, from your listeners, but I'm toying with ideas like how to make the right call or everyone hates the ref or my favorite so far actually is the third team on the field. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, they really shocked me with that. Every one of the match officials talked about the fact that they are a team. There is a central match official, but there's not a single sport. And and sometimes there's as many as seven match officials on the field. And they really take their teamness seriously. So it is the third team on the field. And we, we, we not only take them for granted, but we actually abuse them. And I'd like that to stop. So that's probably what it'll be called, the third team on the field. I like it. That's a very, very intriguing title. I think that sounds great. So how do our listeners find out more about this book and when does it come out? Well, we're in the pro- I've, I've written that first version of the, the Match Officials book now. That's done. We're, we're going back to Cricket Australia and, you know, in the rugby union, rugby league, A-League and the AFL groups to try and talk to them about sponsorship and, and see what we want to do with different versions of that. Best place to do is to just look at jamescarlopio.com, www.jamescarlopio.com. Right now, there's just a holder on there that says, watch this space. And, you know, it'll it'll be available there on Amazon and there'll be an e-link and, a, you know, a paper book and probably early uh, to mid 
2017, it should be ready. Okay. The URL, if you're listening, is you want to go to jamescarlopio.com, spelled J-A-M-E-S-C-A-R-L-O-P-I-O.com, and you can get more information about the book there. That's it. Well, thanks for being on the show, James. It was great to have you, and I'm sure we're going to be talking again because there is so much we have to talk about. I look forward to it, buddy. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Ash. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today? 